joined by David Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, more talk about the Tour de France and what it could offer possibly to NASCAR racing. The future of a certain seven-time champion with a new crew chief. Who could we be talking about? And everything you want to see at Watkins Glen this weekend as the Cup cars and Xfinity cars go left and right. But first, of course, as always, this is episode 28 of Positive Regression. This one David Smith has been waiting for because this is the Davy Allison edition of Positive Regression. David, I always talk about my love of Rusty Wallace. I'm going to give this one to you because Davy Allison was your guy. I will show all the bias possible uh, here. Davy was my guy. I was born in Talladega. My dad worked closely with Davy and the entire Allison family during Davy's ARCA series years. And I, uh, I've gotten to a point in my life, older life, where I'm friendly with his son, Robbie. So it, it's all kind of worked out as a, a boyhood fan of Davy Allison. Uh, I actually attended Davy's Hall of Fame induction earlier this year with my dad. And that was uh, such a cool moment to see as a fan in 1992. Yes, missing out on the championship that year, it has been well-documented. Of course, that was heartbreaking. But the Daytona 500 that season was absolutely epic. He dominated that race. 127 laps led. Uh, No Daytona 500 winner since then has led more laps in a single race. Wow. This is something I hope every one of our listeners gets to experience with their favorite driver someday. Uh, no one had anything for Davey that day, and it felt like it was just one of those days he ran up the score. I know it was Daytona. Uh, I should know better, but at no point during that race was I worried that he might lose. Uh, that is just the irrational confidence of a little kid. Um, <laughs> may we all have a little kid confidence uh, in, in rooting for our uh, favorite athletes. But as a statistician, I am realistic about Davy's ability. He was indeed damn good. He had a 2.4 peer in the five races prior to his rookie season. That would have been 1986. And as a full-time rookie, he was a winner of two races and scored a 3.182 peer, a tremendous rookie season that we really didn't see duplicated until Tony Stewart uh, came a knocking. He had three seasons uh, of 3.0 peer or higher, and at least two wins per season from 1987 through 1992. He won one race in 1993 prior to his death. Alan, I took the liberty of performing a regression analysis to see where he'd likely fall if his career continued past 1993. That's exactly what I was going to ask you, you jerk. You're so good at this, David, because I do it all the time. With Rusty, I go back and I calculate what would have been with the chase, and I'm like, he should have had another championship and all this stuff. David, let us know. I knew you were going to do this. What would Davey have done, do you think? Turns out he's pretty good. Damn right. uh, he, 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 he would have been fine. Um, Five years of 3.0 peer uh, or higher between the ages of 33 and 42 with actually his age 42 season being his projected peak. Uh, and that uh, came in around a 3.2 peer. That would have looked very similar to Jeff Gordon's 2014 season when he was 42 years old. Uh, you know, Alan, it's been said by fans, had Davy Allison lived past 1993, he would have taken championships away from the likes of Dale Earnhardt and Jeff Gordon. He certainly would have contended, as a regression analysis suggests. However, I believe realistically, uh, those two, uh, Earnhardt and Gordon, were shooting stars that not even Davey would have suppressed. I do think Davey Allison could have offered an interesting rivalry to Jeff Gordon, similar to how Mark Martin was always there. It may may not have been an in-your-face, clear-as-day rivalry, but Mark Martin was always 
uh, the foil in waiting uh, for Jeff Gordon to stumble. And I think Davey Allison could have been one step above uh, Mark Martin during that time. Davey didn't have big peaks in his production from year to year, but he was consistently good and offered some fantastic highlights. And as we've seen, I know, you know, your, your friends at Fox Sports do great jobs with these documentaries uh, that led into the Hall of Fame induction, but it really feels like Davey the man and Davey the myth may have taken over uh, Davey the actual producer uh, and I'm okay with that. Uh, all of the stories are sensational. He, he absolutely was that guy based on all accounts. The, the nice guy, the borderline superhero for everyone in the industry. And, uh, some of the stories you hear, just the, the rumors, uh, take the 1987 Daytona 500, for instance. He had tire issues early in the race and he got knocked off the lead lap. So he was just running in mid twenties. The car was fine. It was just, they had early issues and there was a point um, in the later stages of the race. He was in the lead draft, just, just drafting uh, with maybe a, a four or five car pack. And it was Dale Earnhardt that radioed to his crew chief. He, he wanted, he wanted to make clear. He wanted the kid gone <laughs> from the draft and that message got to Davey. So instead of uh, dropping out of the draft, Davey just hammered the gas and drove away. He was just having fun. He didn't need to be in the draft. Uh, he had a he had a rocket ship underneath him and um, was just kind of goofing off in the middle of the, you know, biggest race of the year. No, no worries. Um, but that was Davey. Fun loving guy. All the stories that you have heard are Pretty real, uh, based on everyone I've talked to, and I've talked to a lot of people. But uh, happy to make this episode twenty-eight in his memory. A short, productive career. Um, it's one that we still talk about today. We were just in Pocono, where Ben Rhodes. I mean, it, it was in terms of what social engagement or reaction. I mean, Ben Rhodes had a a Davy Allison inspired uh, paint scheme over the weekend. I'll have it a few more times in the truck series. And, you know, it, it set off Twitter. It, people love it. And for good reason. I mean, we love nostalgia in this sport, but there's just something about Davey Allison and the what could have beens, And not only what could have beens, what he did do, as you've just documented, what he did do, multiple wins in each of his full seasons in that 28 car. I mean, he was a producer. So it's not, it's not crazy to think about, oh, what could have been because we saw that potential there. That's what, uh, makes it fun to look back and also kind of makes it hurt so much. I mean, I just remember being a young guy, you know, racing quarter midgets and, you know, in that same year, uh, when Davey Allison and both Alan Kowicki died, we all had those stickers, 28 Davey and the AK7 Hooters. Like both, all of us had them on, uh, our quarter midgets because it was just a significant loss. And I wasn't a Davey Allison fan. I was a Rusty fan, but we all recognized, uh, the potential talent. So. Uh, always good to look back. It's important to look back and great pick, David, for episode 28 of Positive Regression. Uh, had to do it. Uh, for me, there was, uh, no, no other choice. We'll give Ernie Irvin his, uh, his due at some point. I think episode 36 is around the corner, but, uh, uh, for me, there's only one number 28. Uh, and even now I, uh, I collect, uh, soccer jerseys from various teams across the globe and I have a choice to customize it with a number. I don't put my name. That's, that's a little too much. I don't need the ego stroke, but I do pick a number and every time it is number 28. So from this point forward, that's always going to be my, uh, my go-to. In, this could be a whole separate discussion, but they don't retire numbers in NASCAR, but kind of inadvertently, the 28 has not been on the track for a decade. So in a way, it feels like it's been retired. And if it were ever to come back, I could see the hubbub being almost uh, number three Earnhardt level. You know, at least the number three stayed with Richard Childress, obviously, and when she stayed in the pipeline. I don't know where the next 28 would come from, if anywhere. And it seemed like it would be a significant discussion, even though with so much time passed, there would still be people a little either miffed or just wondering whoever gets it, they better be deserving. And that's yeah. what I'll say about the 28. I'll, I'll, I'll speak to that though. I, I would not mind seeing it again. A, a number is a number that the, the 28 represented a team, uh, just a moment in history. Um, if, if a team felt that that was the number they wanted to run, that, that doesn't set me back. But I will say 
Doug Yates is still part and parcel to this sport. Um, he's at the track every weekend. He means a lot and he touches a lot of avenues within the industry. If he ever wanted to, uh, rekindle the, the desire to go to the track as a team owner and trot out the number 28, that would be the most fitting scenario. Um, I would love to see that, but, Again, a number's a number, and I think um, Davy's lasting impact is just—I think it's more him. It's just—it's just Davy, not necessarily the number. So, whatever path that takes, I'm—I'm I'm game. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, always good to look back, but let's look forward a little bit and move on in this episode of Positive Regression because, David, not only do you like NASCAR racing, you also like cycling. And we've just had uh, the biggest event in all of cycling, the Tour de France. And we mentioned it before on this podcast, oddly enough. Hopefully you learned something in some of the parallels. But, David, you bring up another uh, good point because in the Tour de France, the, obviously the biggest event in cycling that even if you're not a cycling fan, you know about the Tour de France. But there was weather issues. There was a weather delay that affected this massive, massive event. And the cycling world, at least the Tour de France, handles these things maybe differently or has its own unique policy when it comes to weather-related delays, and they handle them a little different than NASCAR does. So, David, I'm going to, again, you're the expert on this one, but but it was a big deal because, obviously, it's the Tour de France. So explain to us what happened in Stage 19 of the, the world's largest cycling event. Yeah, and that was a, a pivotal mountain stage that was going to make or break the remainder of the race, and eventually did, but uh, really interesting stuff. It, it saw a landslide literally on the mountains, a mixture of uh, just snow and water, uh, and there was hail coming down. So it made the course untenable. Continuing the race was uh, not in question. The race officials stopped the race where it stood. And in NASCAR, that would also mean that is the finishing order. But the stewards of the Tour de France did not do that. They reverted back to the last time check where time bonuses were awarded to establish the day's results. They did not, however, declare a winner. It was simply an abandoned stage. I will say that I there are things about this I like. There are things about this that I know will not work. Uh, the thing that I do like is reverting back to an agreed upon checkpoint to set the results. And since NASCAR has implemented stages, I think there's a, a natural one uh, at the end of stage two. If it is, I mean, it already it is already established that two completed stages makes a race official. What if in the event of weather anywhere past that point, that is also where the race is last scored. This would give every team the same endpoint to which they can uh, all reach evenly. They would know in advance of the race starting that that is the cutoff. And though there is no guessing based on weather, uh, right? Because that's, to me, that is where I... I I, I kind of don't, and, and I'm going to be very careful not to use the word deserve here, but I think back to Chris Buescher in 2016 <laughs> and, and Justin Haley this year at Daytona, I'll go an extra step further and I'm going to get blasted by, uh, about this on social media, but it, it whatever, uh, they didn't win those races. They inherited spots in the running order. And as the race was stopped, they happened to be the leader and NASCAR had no choice but to give them the win. Um, they, now, I'm not trying to take their trophies away that they won within the rule book. However, I think NASCAR as a sport is past the point where we, we just stop the race and say, oh, okay, here, here, take this trophy. Like you're, you're the guy in front. Um, I think we can do a little bit better. And I, I like what the Tour de France, uh, did. Uh, at the end of stage 19. I will say, though, a winner will need to be declared. Uh, we're Americans, Alan. We like absolutes. <laughs> and we we can't just leave a sporting event without uh, a winner. So I would say that the reverting back to the end of stage two, that would be your race winner. What 
what say you? What are your thoughts anyway on on just NASCAR's weather policy as is? Well, I mean, first let's poke. Well, if we're going to go with your proposal, I feel there has to be at least some qualifiers, right? I mean, if you, you can't crash after stage two, right? I, would you say you have to still be on the lead lap at least? I mean, you can't win stage two, go out and crash. Weather comes, and then you're then you're still considered the winner. I think that'd be complete horse crap. Uh, I mean, would you throw a qualifier in there? Can we get that out of you? I don't know. I don't no. see. I don't. I don't know that you, I would because you would, you would revert back to potentially with a a crashed car in the garage, forty laps after they crash, rain comes and you revert back to stage two. Yeah, if that Ooh. if that was what? if that was the agreed upon <laughs> if that was the agreed upon checkpoint at the start of the race that if we were going to. If if weather came and we're going to stop this race, the winner is the winner of stage two, bar none. I, I know that the third stage or final stage, whatever we're calling it, is the longest. But at the same time, you have to have at least a point in the event where every team knows that this is what's going to be scored and this is what they're competing for. The The part that I don't care for is the unknown. We we don't need a weather guessing game. Every sporting event has a designated ending or endpoint. Why isn't that already in the rules? Uh, I mean, the 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 current way of doing things to me seems archaic. And as the Tour de France showed, there are clearly better, more fair ways to decide these races. And the only reason no change has been made to this point is because. It isn't really something that ever gets questioned. And I've, I've always sat on my couch and questioned it, but I don't know that it's ever been publicized by drivers or owners or even NASCAR itself. No, and I never thought of it until, uh, you brought it up as a topic for one of, uh, for us this week on this episode. But, um, I mean, I guess I'll have to disagree with you there. I, I don't know if I could think of a crashed car, you know, getting a win, especially if you want to, again, maybe not disparage is the wrong word, but if you want to not agree with Chris Buescher or Justin Haley being rewarded a victory, you said, you know, they, they, they didn't earn a win or they, they were given it because of circumstance. You know, you could say the same thing about some who take four tires and others who take no tires, you know, the no tires are going to put you out front and then, and then the rain comes. I, I don't necessarily disparage Busher or Haley for using their odd strategy. Oh, no. And, and I, and I agree with that. I mean, there are plenty of races that do finish that reward the, the win to someone that is undeserving. My, my suggestion is they weren't even, there was no design to win the race. <laughs> Chris Busher was simply short pitting the cycle and whatever happened happened. But I, I want to, uh, so, okay. If I can get out of you at least uh, a cursory idea, if if Alan Kavana had to fix NASCAR's weather policy, what would it look like? That's a hard question to answer only because, yeah, my only beef with it is there. it's hard to – there's no extreme consistency to how they deal with every single weather event. And maybe there shouldn't be because every weather event is different. You know, there are times where we've waited it out seven hours before and started at two in the morning. Uh, there are other times where they call it, you know, it looks like it's going to rain for the next three hours. Let's just call it now. Um, there's no consistency to that. If there was any way to establish consistency, like a mandatory uh, two or three hour wait period, and if we hit the three hour mark, it's over no matter what. We're not waiting till two, you know, we're not going any longer, whatever. If there was a consistent wait period from the time the rain started, I would, I would be more okay with it. That's my only beef with the weather policy is that it's not, there's no consistency to it. Maybe there shouldn't be, but there, there's no detailed end to if the rain comes, how long we're going to be there waiting. And that, and, and different circumstances tell us, you know, who, who the winner may be in, in different races and different uh, scenarios. And that part to me is weird. So that I would try to change that. I will, I will leave you with one more thought. We're now in an era where winning a race is rewarded with a playoff spot. Uh, Justin Haley aside, that's a different circumstance, but with the way the year end purse is structured, it is lucrative to make the playoffs, to become a playoff team. Whenever you hear 
a mid-pack team, somebody like a uh, maybe Ganassi is not fair, but but a JTG Doherty Racing. It, when they say at the beginning of the season that their goal is to get a car into the playoffs, it's not because it's a realistic hurdle to clear. It's not. It has nothing to do with their. They would just be happy to make the show. It's because it means they'd get paid. That's that's why that's why it's the goal. As important as that is, I'm surprised that the RTA, for instance, hasn't gotten together to push forward a new way to reward results in the event of a shortened race. And and honestly, from where I sit, maybe they have, and maybe the room is split between the haves and the have-nots on such a rule. But I have to think there's a lot at stake and just arbitrarily picking uh, a time to end the race when you say we cannot race anymore, the we have lost the track, here's the trophy, that seems like you're giving a lot for something that could have been handled much better. I don't know. Just It's just a thought um, that popped into my head while watching Tour de France. I don't know. I think there's there's something to be explored there. Something to think about. That's why we do this podcast. Let's move on. Something uh, a little more um, concrete maybe we can talk about. And that is seven-time champion Jimmy Johnson, who coming off of Pocono Race on Monday afternoon, it was announced his uh, crew chief, Kevin Mendering, was no longer there, and he had been replaced. Jimmy Johnson going into the next few races before the playoff, trying to make the playoff, and he will do it with a different new crew chief, a first-time crew chief in uh, young Cliff Daniels. I can call him young because he's younger than I am, which is odd. But um, uh, So uh, it was a little surprising, maybe. It's just jarring. I mean, you don't think of in-season moves like this for a seven-time champion like Jimmy Johnson. So um, before he starts out, David, with his new crew chief, let, let's just go over his season to date. Three top fives, eight top tens, but an average finish of 15.1 in the 17th fastest car per central speed rankings. And uh, it was a few weeks ago, David, where we pointed out, if anything, Jimmy Johnson is still Jimmy Johnson in terms of the driver making a difference. Given the equipment that he's in, He'd been overachieving so far this year, and maybe it's time to make a change is how you can kind of interpret it. But where do you see Jimmy Johnson at this point so far in the year? How do you assess it? Hmm. Read me that Jimmy Johnson average finish again. Uh, the average finish, 15.1 for the seven-time champion. Okay. Chase Elliott's average finish is 15.0. And Whoa. Chase Elliott has the eighth fastest car in the series, huh. uh, much faster than uh, than the 48. Jimmy Johnson has a top 10 peer right now. The production is there. It's just that everything else isn't. Uh, he is a below-par passer. He is a below-par restarter. Uh, his car isn't fast. And when there are consecutive weekends like the few he's had, the boiling point is understandable. I think there's a lot of confusion about what is going on. I believe there's confusion from the driver. Uh, I think there's confusion from the fans. And, and, and honestly, Alan, I think some of that is just, if, if you picked up a newspaper after the Pocono race and you just read the box score, it says stage two winner, Jimmy Johnson, mm-hmm. right? So it on, on the surface. And then if you consider the top 10 peer, things aren't, so awful, really. It's just, it's that confusion. And, and Jimmy's quote, uh, today, I'm picking this up from the, uh, the Dustin Long piece on, uh, NBC Sports's website. But, but Jimmy said this, I've questioned myself. Did I talk too much? Do I overanalyze things too much? Am I confusing the engineers, the crew chief with a level of sensitivity I have in the car? At one point, I felt that was a huge strength that I had. Now has it flipped? Now am I focused on too many small details and not worried about the big things? I've been bouncing around with various approaches on those three areas, and I feel like I'm in a much better place and confidence as the year has went on. So if that quote is to be believed, and I mean, it, why wouldn't it be? He, he said it. Uh, he has really no earthly idea what what is happening to him, what is happening to his team, and history suggests it's part of his decline. Um, he is 
in his age 43 season. And that's, uh, that's not a rosy one, um, based on history of, of all drivers dating back to 2002. Uh, for NASCAR drivers, the decline begins when there are holes when there previously were none. We saw Tony Stewart's passing ability diminish, uh, before he, uh, reached his, uh, his decline. We saw Matt Kenseth's passing ability disappear completely. And in his final season, his results were solely speed dependent. Johnson might be there. Uh, I mean, he is, he is getting results. Yeah, but if, if that confuses his, people. If he's not passing well and he doesn't have fast, you know, equipment, where is he getting these results yeah. that they give him that good peer? How, how should people interpret that? He's just digging results and they are hollow. Uh, consider, uh, a, a, a baseball pitcher with a good ERA, but with a pitching profile that suggests he's just going to get beaten up. And that's part why I made him a candidate for regression in the second half is that these numbers don't really jive. This whole dynamic seems seems like something that just is not sustainable. And if Hendrick Motorsports looked at these numbers and realized this, then I credit them for jumping on this now and seeing if there is anything they can do to course correct in time for the playoffs. And if it doesn't get done in time for the playoffs, then uh, a 31-year-old crew chief is going to have a trial by fire integration into the greatest stock car series on earth uh, for the remainder of the year. So in that sense, this, this might be a, a win-win situation for Hendrick. Yeah. And Cliff Daniels replacing Kevin Mendering, Mendering who was coming into his own, his own situation as first time cup crew chief at the beginning of the season for seven time champion, Jimmy Johnson, who was trying to get back on track and end a long winless drought. So Mendering had a tough job ahead of him regardless. Uh, as they say in other sports, when, when a team is struggling, you, you can't fire the players. So you make a change at crew chief here in NASCAR. Uh, was that deserved or, or what was, what was Mendering delivering or, or hindering Jimmy Johnson at all? Can, can you make a call on that in the small sample size? I, I mean, I don't know if it's small sample size, but just given to this point of the season, can you, can you make an assessment if he was delivering or hindering Jimmy Johnson? Kevin Mendering had a 62% uh, position retention on green flag pit stops with a net loss of 17 positions on normal ovals. Considering Johnson's decline in passing ability, that's the kind of strategy that just doesn't cut the muster. A good crew chief compliments his driver uh, or supplements what his driver can't do well. And in that regard, Mendering failed. Uh, if we look at their speed, Hendrick cars rank 8th, 14th, 15th, and 17th in central speed this season. That probably seems low if, uh, if you're just joining our podcast for the first time. And I actually wrote about this for The Athletic. A lot of talk about Chevrolet resurgence and Hendrick resurgence, but Look, this past weekend at Pocono showed that Chevrolet has a lot of work to do, and that includes Hendrick. The 48 is the slowest of the bunch, and I wrote last fall that the Mendering hire would not be a revolution in the making. Uh, his statistical profile as Elliot Sadler's crew chief in the Xfinity series was one of a caretaker, just keeping the wheels on, just keeping Jimmy Johnson's team afloat, uh, not someone who can transform a program. And I say that because there were no numbers of his that popped. Uh, had, had something looked really good on the spreadsheet, um, I would have thought otherwise, but it just wasn't there. Um, he didn't do it for Elliot Sadler. He didn't do it for Jimmy Johnson. Maybe he was expected to, or Johnson wanted something uh, or someone that might be able to do that. Uh, and that necessitated this change. Johnson had a prior relationship with Cliff Daniels. Uh, they had worked together in the past, and there might be something there Johnson is more comfortable with going forward. Mendering uh, replaced, but not fired. Uh, you don't hear that a lot in NASCAR. A crew chief or any member of a team too much really, at least high up, uh, being forced out fully 
of an organization. Uh, oftentimes for that to happen, I mean, sometimes, you know, there's contracts and lawyers and, and suing involved for, for, uh, for actual changes to be made and someone to leave an organization. Kevin Mendering, uh, spoken, uh, highly of still by everyone over at Hendrick this week, uh, despite the change, moved to a senior position within the team. David, uh, I have to assume a lot of that is just, is it secrets and brain power? They just don't want getting out. Uh, again, nothing against Kevin Mendering. I'm sure he, he will, be uh, be able to provide a lot of help behind the scenes, as we've seen with Darian Grubb over at Hendrick and, and um, Kenny Francis. You know, a lot of people they retain a lot of brain power, but I guess just in general, how protective are teams in terms of not letting anyone go to another team with a bunch of secrets? I guess. Uh, yeah, and it's not just Hendrick. We see it with with Team Penske. Uh, Roy McCauley, if you remember that name, he won the Daytona 500 with Ryan Newman. He's still employed. With Team Penske, that was a long he, time ago. <laughs> he has a, he has a role, right? Lance McGrew is still at Hendrick. Richard Petty Motorsports, if you remember, replaced Drew Blickensdurfer as the crew chief of the forty three car. Um, I mean, it, it was a very public demotion, and then not even a year and a half later, very quietly, Drew Blickensdurfer became the crew chief of the forty three car. He never <laughs> left. He's, he he stayed there. Um, but if you if you consider the value that is placed on just intelligence uh, achieved through um, working with uh, proprietary data, there may be a number uh, that a team owner would pay to ensure that that intelligence doesn't leave the walls. I don't know. I, I mean, Alan, let's let's check your pocketbook. If there was a, a deep secret that that was the key to your success. Would you pay seventy grand a year to keep it quiet? <laughs> sure. I mean, that, that's, because that's kind of that's kind of what it is, and that's that's why you're not seeing a lot of um, you know perfectly suitable potential crew chiefs not hitting the market once they lose their jobs. Kevin Mendering could absolutely be an Xfinity Series crew chief. He did fine for Elliot Sadler. Now, a fine Xfinity crew chief doesn't cut it as Jimmy Johnson's crew chief in the Cup Series, but there would be a role for him somewhere if he wanted to pursue that. But his intelligence is valued. He's in the know. And uh, unlike other sports, I mean, gosh, the, the NFL, what they call it Black Monday. The, the last, uh, after, after the last game of the year, the, the next Monday, every coach gets fired. Um, we don't, we might have that with lower personnel, but these these high-ranking uh, crew chiefs and engineers that are making decisions and that are privy to some pretty serious uh, proprietary data, they're not let go so easily. Um, they've they've done enough and they've seen enough that that's just not something that you can easily let walk out the door. How do you feel about that? No, not make, it makes total sense. Um, again, NASCAR is not like many sports <laughs> in many different aspects. So, you know, it's easy and fun to draw parallels, but, uh, it's, it, it just, it's not that easy sometimes. And I, and I agree. Um, look, the more I learn about this sport, the realize, the, the more I realize certainly the less I, I ever knew. And the more I learn is that, you know, how much these secrets are valued, how, uh, how important all this behind the scenes work actually is. And, you know, obviously the racing is the story, but just the money and the technology and the brain power and how smart these people are and the secrets that they have, you know, we're talking on a week to week basis uh, and, and just through the season, how much things change and how much people learn to make things go fast, to make these cars go fast and, and engines have more power and do all the things that have to make you successful in terms of aero and all these little, you know, machines that they have. And I can't, you know, it blows my mind that the stuff that I don't know when you realize, wow, there's so much I do not know about this sport, but the people that do, man, that, that, that is so valuable, that information. And I understand why you want to keep them around. And, and I guess it's worth the price because the manpower and hours that go into learning all this stuff, it's cheaper just to keep it around and not go to another team uh, because I'm sure there are bidders out there sometimes who want that information. Absolutely. And think the the ripple effects that would occur uh, if, if you let someone go and maybe they weren't uh, performing up to snuff, but they knew enough to 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 make uh, what you were doing well 
irrelevant. You could go to another team and just have that quickly neutralized. Makes you wonder if Colpern was indeed an actual free agent, you know, out for the bidding, what that brain power price was, right, to keep him at JGR. Like, I don't know the full details if they had a retainer on him or whatever, but imagine if he was indeed out there as uh, as a legit free agent and all the brain power and smarts that he had and secrets he could have brought to another team and what it t- what it would take to retain him. Woo, baby. <laughs> yeah. That 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 and that comes at a premium. Um yeah. I, I mean and that's that's something that increases his value too, right? I mean just tack sure. that on to his asking price just from being a good crew chief. Oh, by the way, I know things. So that that would actually uh in a sense make you even more valuable than you probably already are. Absolutely. And uh, that's a good transition right into our next uh, segment here. The, we always like to preview the upcoming race, Watkins Glen. I mentioned Cole Pern, and he's a great guy to mention, David, because Martin Truex Jr., by far, I mean, you have to say, right, the best road course racer, at least among the cup regulars right now, when you look at just, just the recent record. Last five races on road courses, he has three wins, a second-place finish, and he got spun out at the Roval where he was about to win, right? And so that could have been a fourth win in the last five races and a second-place finish. So if we're looking at Watkins Glen this weekend, one of the best trips in all of NASCAR, I think you have to assume Martin Truex Jr. is the the favorite to win the race this weekend. That's that's a pretty solid uh, assumption. <laughs> Good analysis uh, by me, right? <laughs> yeah, I I mean, yeah, he was the victim of Jimmy Johnson's YOLO moment uh, at uh, on the Charlotte Roval, but... Martin Truex. Okay. So he occupied the fastest car on road courses during the 2017 season. He occupied the fastest car on road courses during the 2018 season. We've had one road course race in 2019. Alan, you care to guess where his car ranked in central speed for the race? <laughs> I bet it's up there. I bet it's first. <laughs> it is. It, it is indeed first, but. I've been really trying to figure this out. Who is the best Cup Series regular on the road course? Is AJ Allmendinger, uh, isn't in the sport anymore and, and we're seeing the ringers come in less and less nowadays. Truex, pretty valuable and, and just kind of understanding what he does. Alan, he doesn't make mistakes. Mm-hmm. He has completed every single lap at Watkins Glen in his 13 tries in a, in a cup series. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, that is, that's utterly impressive. I think back to Dale Earnhardt senior, uh, he was asked once about road courses and his philosophy of driving on road courses. And he knew he wasn't uh, up to par, but he did say that he made it his goal. Every road course race to not veer off the course, just stay on the track. And eventually, towards the end of his career, he won uh, a Cup Series race on a road course. Well, Martin Truex is doing that in spades. Uh, I mean, he's not he's not missing any corners, especially at Watkins Glen, and and that has shown. Um, it would it is going to take a significant, nearly extraordinary effort to uh, to defeat him this weekend. Other than Martin Truex Jr., is there anyone that stands out in terms of just sheer speed? I mean, we could always look at the stats, but in terms of overall speed, and that, that matters a lot more, it seems, at Watkins Glen. So speed at road courses, what does that lend itself to? Can we just look at the overall speed of the season, or can we look at more little nuance or details? Uh, a, little, a little bit of both, maybe. Uh, so, for instance, Kyle Busch ranked second in speed at Sonoma, and that's probably not a shock. He has the fastest car in the series this season, but the car that ranked third in central speed uh, earlier this year in California was the number nine car of Chase Elliott, and he is the reigning Watkins Glen winner. And that strikes me as uh, is interesting, Alan, because that entire race last year really played into his strong suit. Uh, we don't see many full course yellows on road courses and Watkins Glen especially because it takes a heck of a crash to bring out such a thing. Uh, so that means green flag runs and pit strategy are vital, but more importantly, 
it mitigates the issues uh, brought forth by restarts for those drivers who aren't very good at restarts. And that is exactly what happened to Chase Elliott last year at Watkins Glen. He came into the race, not a very good restarter. He's still not an above average restarter, but that didn't matter at Watkins Glen. He had a fast car. He's a very good road course driver, probably doesn't get enough credit for that. Um, but the race played in to his strengths. It is something that helps a driver like Daniel Suarez, uh, also a below average restarter. Uh, that wasn't a problem for him last year at Watkins Glen. He finished fourth. Uh, Matt Benedetto will benefit from this. He had a great run at Sonoma. And uh, another driver who might also enjoy this dynamic in a year where he's struggling on restarts, we've already talked about him, Jimmy Johnson. Uh, the Hendrick cars quite fast on the road courses, and he could benefit from that. Well, you mentioned two uh, or a few people that still need to make the playoffs right on that borderline. Something we did last week, we talked about uh, drivers on that borderline for the playoff and the strategy that they may play. Because again, once again, David, we are going to be in a situation, we saw it last year, where you can maximize stage points or you can put yourself in best position for a win. Depending on your situation, it may alter your strategy. Uh, we saw it last week in Pocono. We saw it last year at Watkins Glen, and we'll likely see it again this year in terms of the stages. You can stay out and maximize your stage points or, again, put yourself in best position for a win toward the end of the race. So, David, for those people, those drivers on the playoff borderline, who who benefits most from this race? We've already mentioned Suarez. We mentioned Jimmy Johnson. I think Suarez is in an interesting situation only because he's had top fives in every time he's raced here, I believe, at Watkins Glen. He's had great finishes. So he can contend for the win, but he also needs to maximize those points, which he could certainly do as well. I don't know what strategy you go with if you're the 41 team. Yeah, and it might be one of just low-hanging fruit. Uh, I have I have been told that uh, all of the Hendrick drivers at Sonoma were told that they were going to go for the stage points if it was right there in front of them, if they were running up front at the end of the stages. So if we remember William Byron relinquishing uh, a spot after the stage. Probably killed his chance at a race win, but he, he got some stage points. If Suarez is on that plan... Um, he can rack up a lot, and that's that's probably my uh, my pick for the uh, the best playoff borderline driver for this race. He struggled with restarts since entering the Cup Series. That's not a big factor in a race like this, and he cut his teeth on road courses, a solid road course racer now, and he has a Stuart Haas car capable of being very fast. Uh, at Sonoma, his car ranked eighth in central speed. That is the second fastest car that he has had at his disposal uh, this season. Texas was his fastest car. I would like him to uh, to do a little bit more than he usually does uh, just because this is a road course race that, again, as we discussed, suits his strengths. Um, David, we always say this every race, what, something we want to see out of Watkins Glen. Uh, I'll go first on this one only because this is the kind of race where maybe you can take out some revenge. I, I love the chaos. I'm sorry I'm not a purist. I'm not looking at anything too crazy. But the war of words between, say, a Kurt Busch and a Ricky Stenhouse on Twitter this week after what we saw in Pocono, I want to see some fireworks. I'd love to see a little revenge maybe taken out. Watkins Glen is kind of the place you can do it. You know, the bus stops, the turns, two cars close to each other. I think we can see um, just that magnetism sometimes we see in the race of, of two cars having issues with each other, two drivers, and somehow they find each other during the Watkins Glen race. I want to see that happen. Uh, I probably want the polar opposite of that. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I want the smartest possible road course race, uh, backwards fuel strategy, a la Paul Andrews and a long green flag run to the finish drivers doing their best to conserve both fuel and tires. Uh, crew chief, uh, crew chief's getting the math right. It's Watkins Glen. I'm a nerd. This is probably what will happen to the T. Uh, I'm easy to please, Alan. Hey, it's a fun weekend. It's a fun race. Um, you know, we'll all be pleased with just a good finish and something to talk about come Monday. Nothing wrong with that. So we'll see what's happening over in Watkins Glen this weekend, both Xfinity. The Xfinity race is usually pretty fun, too. A lot of cup guys in that one. So we'll see what happens Saturday and Sunday. 
Next up, the Positive Regression Scouting Network. We've got some updates. Remember, we have put out the word and you guys have answered. You can pick a driver, whether they an up and cover, whether they be local for you or someone uh, maybe in the little higher tier series, you know, an up and cover we could soon see, say, in the truck series or Xfinity series. But we want to hear from you. And David, we have our next installment of the Scouting Network. Who's up? Avery Haig is scouting Sam Mayer, a 16-year-old driver in the NASCAR KNN East series from Franklin, Wisconsin. It's been a solid month of racing for Sam Mayer. On July 13th, he made his sixth ARCA series start this year and led 17 laps en route to a third-place finish at Elko Speedway. Then on July 20th, he raced in the KNN East series race at New Hampshire and after a bit of a rough start, was able to climb to second where he finished. His most important test, though, came last weekend at Iowa. He absolutely dominated the KNN combination race, his second KNN East win of the season, and as a result, took over the points lead. Uh, Alan, he's heading your way soon, uh, slated to make his truck series debut on August 15th at Bristol Motor Speedway. Ooh, that'll be a hell of a debut. Additionally, Brendan Wilhite is scouting Haley Deegan, an 18-year-old Canon West Series driver from Temecula, California. NASCAR sensation Haley Deegan turned 18 on July 18th and completed a whirlwind tour in Charlotte and New York City in what was a big month for the now super speedway eligible driver. She ran three races during the month. She finished 8th in the ARCA race at Elko, 11th out of 17 cars at New Hampshire in the KN East race. Should be noted that that was actually an improvement over her race there last year, where she finished 16th out of 20 cars. And she finished 12th out of 20 cars last weekend at Iowa Speedway. Um, Alan, we haven't really discussed Haley Deegan much on this podcast. I will say that her production numbers in ARCA and KNN East are not good, not inspiring, but age is on her side and there is a lot of excitement around her. Um, is that, uh, is that the vibe you're picking up? Uh, absolutely. And look, she gets the attention and she gets wins, Win winning, look, winning counts. I know, uh, we talk a lot about production and the point of this podcast is to go a little deeper other than the stat line. But there will always be that benefit of getting the wins and getting the highlight wins, especially when you turn somebody or you use that nose or that bumper. That's going to get you attention, and that that will kind of outweigh some of the other issues. Some people may overlook that. You know what I mean? Sponsors love winning. And uh, she can talk the talk, and she has some trophies. And, uh, look, I, I like the cut of her jib. I've said that before, uh, that, that phrase before here on this, uh, podcast. But when you hear her, like say on the Dale Jr. download or you hear her in other interviews, just the way she talks about racing and what she's looking for on the track and how she describes it, I find it pretty intriguing. And I love hearing young drivers talk about it that way in terms of what they're looking for and, uh, the, the intelligence behind them. And I hear that from her. Um, I, I didn't realize her, her production numbers were, subpar, but, uh, I will continue to watch and I hope our, our, our scouts, uh, continue to give us, uh, you know, the details about it and, and what they're seeing because the idea of the scouting network is pretty cool, David. We've heard about these prospects and I hope it, it grows more. Again, if you are out at your local track, give us a, give us a shout. Go get local. If you're out there every weekend at your local racetrack, pick a driver you think may have some potential and tell us about them. We'd love to hear about it. Agreed. Go to scout.motorsportsanalytics.com to sign up. And that is also a way that uh, helps support our show. Uh, so if uh, you feel the, the need to do that, uh, that is appreciated. And as you can tell, this is a, a pretty fun exercise. We're learning lots. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, that does it for episode 28 of Positive Regression. Just remember, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are there. We are available. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or review. That does help this podcast gain some visibility, and your help in spreading the word is greatly appreciated. We have great listeners. If you have questions, we want to answer them right here on this podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always busy. What are you working on? <laughs> uh, the speed rankings are updated on The Athletic with a look at 
Chevrolet's forgettable weekend at Pocono. I'll also be writing about Jimmy Johnson in depth uh, later in the week for The Athletic. And on the homepage, motorsportsanalytics.com, more track position radars will be posted. Uh, Chase Briscoe's is already up. I think we'll be hearing about him uh, come the Eldora Dirt Derby uh, tonight, if you're listening to this uh, first thing on Thursday. There are uh, there are more on the way after his. And bonus, KNN East Series Pier will be posted for the first time this year. Check that out. Uh, before the uh, before the end of the weekend. Good stuff there. And David said it. If you are listening to this on Thursday, first of all, thank you. That means you are a subscriber, and we love that. But I will be in Eldora for the Dirt Derby uh, on FS1. Uh, always a special event, uh, kind of a crazy, just, you know, it's out there. It's something different. Uh, it could really shake up the crazy situation that is the Truck Series playoff right now. Uh, I'm interested to see what the likes of Harrison Burton, who raced there last year, but uh, what he can do and maybe put himself uh, points-wise into the playoff. That'll be interesting. So that's where I'll be for FS1. Uh, check out my Twitter feed. I interviewed Kyle Larson after the Pocono race, a very resilient Pocono weekend. He had some really interesting stuff to say, very aware of uh, – the mistakes he's made and the points he's given away. And that, that kind of affects his driving from here on out. Interesting conversation I had with him. Also on Race Hub this week, check out my Twitter feed because we had our latest edition of What's in a Number? The History of the 24. And I'll just uh, give you a spoiler. It had a lot to do with Jeff Gordon. So, David, uh, yeah, make sure you watch Eldora and then uh, watch the Cup stuff. And check out my Twitter feed at Alan Cavana for all the stuff we did on Race Hub over the weekend. So, uh, another great episode for David Smith. I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening to Positive Progression. Stay positive. We'll see you next week. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.